Joshua sure. want me to go um, ahead and give you my spiel, and then ask you some questions. I'm just going to do some introductory questions, get your name, where yeah. we are, just for record keeping, so we can organize all of it. Good. And then if you want to go off your notes, and we can go from there. Okay. Are we on? Yep, we're here. All righty. Well, uh, can we just start off by, if you could state your name, uh, where we are, and when you were born? Yeah. My name is Roger Smith, and I was born in 1930, so I just had my 85th birthday recently. Congratulations. Happy Thank birthday. You. Thank you. All right. So, I mean, if you want to go off your notes from here for a little bit, that would be great. As I understand it, you're interested in, as far as talking to me, interested in what it was like growing up as a teenager during World War II? Yeah. It's, we're doing stories from the home front, so. From the home exactly. front. Exactly. Okay. I didn't grow up in Chestertown. I grew up in Churchill, mm -hmm. a little village about seven miles south of here. Are you familiar with Churchill? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just drove through it yesterday. Through it or, or bypassed around it? Through it. Through it? Yes. Okay, okay well, that, that's good. Um, I lived in Churchill until I, was, until I graduated from high school. There was a high school in Churchill at the time. Not now, of course, but... And that was in 1947, and I enrolled at Washington College and was there until I graduated in 1951. And in 1951, when um, most of the males who graduated with me, who had been a bit too young for World War II, uh, when we graduated, it was in the middle of the Korean War, actually at the beginning of the Korean War. So we were immediately we were deferred from the selective service, the draft, while we were in college. But as soon as we graduated, you know, they were going to draft us into the armed forces. Many of us enlisted, and I enlisted in the Air Force. And when the war was over, when the armistice was signed in, uh, I think it was August 1953, um, I left active duty. Uh, went in the reserves, but I left active duty, duty came home and spent 34 years as a uh, public school teacher and administrator. What did you teach? I was a history teacher. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I was a history teacher. So um, that's my life history pretty much up until uh, 34 years when I, after I went to work and retired. Uh, but I moved to Chestertown shortly after I got out of the Air Force, and so I've, I have lived in Chestertown. But I'll tell you a little bit, if it would be helpful to you, about what small villages on the eastern shore of Maryland were like 75, 75 years ago. Exactly what we want. That's perfect. They were very much unlike they are today, very much. Today, um, where you said you drove through Churchill, mm -hmm. so probably as you didn't take the bypass. Now there's a bypass. There was no bypass at the time. The Route 213, main road down the peninsula, goes, went right through the town. Um, 
back in in those days, the Eastern Shore was pretty much isolated from the Western Shore of Maryland because of, of the Chesapeake Bay. It was a, a long trip, an arduous trip, getting to Baltimore. There's no no Chesapeake Bay Bridge that you have we have now, and no Route 301 dual four-lane highway. They were just um, country roads, not as wide as Route 213 is from here to Churchill. Two lanes through little towns. To go to Baltimore, for example, we would travel, if you were traveling from Chestertown, you had to travel to Kent Island. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know where Kent Island is, of course. That's where you meet the bridge. Right. No bridge. You get to Kent Island, then you went south on Kent Island to a place called Mattapique. And there you met a ferry. And you drove your car onto the ferry. And the ferry slowly took you across the bay to Annapolis. Now the bridge ends at what's called um, can't think of the name, but in those days it went right into the town of Annapolis. The ferry did. Okay, so we're talking to go to Baltimore. We're talking probably about a more than a three-hour trip, three and a half-hour trip maybe. Because from here to get to the ferry, you went through small towns, some with traffic signals that's slowed you down, um, winding roads through little villages. So it was a long trip. The only other way to get off the peninsula to the western shore would be to go north up through Cecil County, Elkton, that area, yeah. take Route 40, which in those days was not a four-lane highway like it is now. It was a two-lane highway, again, through small towns, and that was, that was, I don't know how long that would take, but it was a long trip also. So these little villages were pretty well isolated. Adding to that, adding to the fact that you had this trouble getting across the bay, there was gas rationing because gas was very scarce. The armed uh, forces needed all the fuel they could get and civilians were limited. And I'll talk a little bit more about rationing in, in a couple minutes. So the little, little town of Churchill, you went through it now. You, you said you drove through it. As you drove into it from the north, um, there you came to a, a school. And across from the school is a little store that sells groceries and gasoline. And that's the only commercial endeavor in the town now. And probably, except we're seeing some activity and some human beings around that store, after you left it and went on down to the center of the village, you probably wouldn't see a, a human being. Because people mostly sleep there, but they work someplace else, and they're gone during the daytime. 
No stores, no other kinds of commercial activity now. I mean, yeah, now. But 75 years ago, I'm going back to 1940, of course, and to 45, 46 when I was growing up there. Uh, I'll tell you about the little town. It had four um, food markets, full-blown food markets. They were called grocery stores then, four grocery stores. It had a new car distributorship. You ever heard of the Studebaker car? Yeah. My dad's a car collector. I know a lot about okay. Packers oh, and Studebakers. Stud Packers and Studebakers, okay. My father was a Studebaker distributor. Wow. Yeah. That's a big deal. Great car. They stopped building them in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Since you know cars, you might remember that uh, Studebaker and Packard um, merged yes. because both of them were dying mm -hmm. in sales and they merged. And my father referred that referred to that as one intoxicated person trying to hold the other one up. So they both went out of business right. and my father retired at that time. He was ready to retire. Across from his business was a pharmacy we called it a drugstore. Now, drugstores, some sell legalized pot, but this is this was a pharmacy. This sold prescription drugs um, with a soda fountain, and the uh, the owner, the, the, the pharmacist, made his own chocolate and just delicious uh, sodas and ice cream sundaes and, and things like that. Also in the town were four churches, a hardware store, a movie theater, two schools, a feed mill, a um, what is now called a bed and breakfast, but in those days it was called a boarding house. My grandmother had the boarding house. The house is not there now, but it was a very large seven-bedroom house where people stopped for the night before they went along to other parts, south or north. And of course, the next morning she had breakfast, served breakfast to them. There was a traffic signal in the middle of the town, down uh, in, the, in the center of town where there's an intersection, and if you went left, it would take you out of town going east. There was a traffic signal there. Um, a fire department, two, um, and I hope I'm not repeating myself, two uh, barber shops, a hair salon for ladies. Um, let me see what else was there. Take your time. All right. I think I've just about got it all. Post office, of course, we had a post office. Um, so it was a, it like many little villages here around this area. 
and in most places, I suppose. It was a bustling little, bustling little town, little commercial center. On, for example, Friday and Saturday nights, the town would be loaded with people, you know, walking up and down the streets, cars parked on both sides of the street. People coming, for example, uh, from the countryside, the farmers coming into town to buy their groceries for the, for the week or go to the movie or get a soda at Dr. Sterling's soda fountain or just to socialize because this was the center of social life. Things would go on at the high school, you know, plays and so forth. and. They'd come to see those. So it was, it was a very busy little, uh, little place to grow up in. And you're interested in what it was like um, to be there and, and related to, to the war that was going on at the time. Uh, my most vivid memory of the war, and I don't know, I was 13 or 14 at the time, I guess, was that suddenly I woke up one morning and all the young men were gone. Now, obviously, it didn't happen one night. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of years. But it, it seems to me I didn't realize what was going on in that respect until sometime a year or two, maybe after the war started. But it was true. Um, young men between the ages of 18 and, and say 30, they were not there any longer. principal of my high school disappeared. He didn't disappear, he just didn't show up one day because he left to go into the armed forces. A couple of the teachers were no longer there, male teachers. They were replaced by, for the most part, uh, people who had retired, teachers who had retired and had returned to fill the vacancies. Uh, our new principal was a, had been a retired principal who came back to fill in until the war was over and, and the principal who left could return. Uh, the postal, um, the postman, he was no longer there. People that worked in my father's auto agency, uh, a couple of them had left to go in the in the service. Um, the fire department, for example, the young men were no, who had been active members of the fire department were not there. So they were replaced by older men and three boys. At that time, if you were 14, because of the necessity to have somebody to help, you could become a member of the fire department. 
and the older ones trained us as best they could. The school, as you go into Churchill, sitting up a little bit on a, on a hill, is an elementary school. It was the highest, where I went to high school. Now the fire department was in the center of town, further down, maybe, maybe a half mile away. And the fire sergeant blew, those of us who were members of the fire department could immediately get up from our desks and race down the street to the firehouse to help put out the fire wherever it was. So the, um, the man who drove the fire truck was a Methodist minister and he had no experience fighting fires or driving fire trucks, but he did it. His nickname was the Sky Pilot. I'm not sure what the connection was to his ministry and the fact that he was driving the, the fire truck, but it, it was an affectionate nickname. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he liked to be known as the sky pilot. It wasn't a derogatory thing at all. All right, besides all those things in Chestertown and, and Churchill and all, and it wasn't, the population wasn't that much different than it is now, maybe less people. But you can see that it was a social hub for that community. Four miles south of Churchill was a prisoner of war camp. Mm -hmm. You probably have heard about that. Yeah, heard a little bit about it. Well, the guys in the POW camp, the German um, prisoners, worked in the, on the farms around the area. Now, they were accompanied to the farm by guards, of course, but they worked in the fields, they milked the cows, they did all the you know, farm work that the farmers um, required, and they worked very well. I can't remember any of them trying to escape. I can't remember them ever, ever having to round up any of them. Uh, of course, there were army, there were soldiers there to contain them, uh, but it worked very well for the farmers because it gave them extra hands to uh, do the farm work. Now, in some cases, um, young men who owned the farms or had grown up on the farms or farm families, they were exempt from the draft if they cared to be. They didn't have to go in the army because that was such an essential thing. People had to have food. Let me see what else I have here. Sure. Rationing of products was a big thing because there were so many essential items that, that uh, was required for the for the war effort, 
uh, rationing was um, such things as food, clothing, gasoline, tires, new cars. Um, I mean, just there were so many things. People had um, books of food stamps. Now, you know, you, you relate food stamps to the underprivileged, the people under the poverty, poverty level, level. But in those days, everybody had a book of food stamps. And when you went to buy something at the grocery store, you had to use your stamps. And sugar, for example, was rationed. You could, and I can't, I'm too, uh, too old to remember exactly how that worked, except a stamp represented a certain quantity of sugar. And you couldn't get more than that quantity after you run out of your food, your, your sugar food stamps. Um, and the same thing with meats, the same thing with um, gasoline. On, on the um, on the windshield of cars, every car and truck, you would see a stamp that said A, B, or C. And that, that related to how essential your work was and how much gasoline you were allotted per week or month or however it was allotted out. The A stamp, as I remember, uh, was for doctors and emergency workers, nurses who had to get to the hospitals and just essential things that where people had to travel. B was less to C. Uh, you didn't have really much of a necessary to drive your car. So you, you were very limited in the amount of gasoline you could buy. And that was another thing that added to the isolation of the Eastern Shore because not only did it take forever and a day to get anywhere else, any um, urban area, but you didn't have either the money to do it or the gasoline to drive your car there. Cars were rationed. They stopped building cars. The, the car manufacturers converted to building tanks and all the things, airplanes, all the things necessary for the war effort. So my father's business converted from selling new cars to keeping the old cars running. Mm -hmm. And that was quite a task because you had to um, improvise sometimes with the different parts. Some, some, of them, some of them you couldn't get. Rubber was very scarce. Um, many of the rubber plantations uh, throughout the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, had been overrun by the Japanese. So um, new tars were impossible to get, again, unless you were, were a very essential need for, for them. So when the tars wore out, you recap them. You put new treads on them. You just put new treads over top of the old tars. 
and they would last not really, really a long time. But if you heard a car going down the road and something flapping, it was one of those treads that was getting ready, getting ready to come off. All right, let's see. Like we talked about the gasoline rationing and the ABC stamps. We talked about the uh, food stamps. I told you about my um, realization that there were no, no longer young men in the area. There was a National Guard unit in, in in this area, in fact, I guess all areas of, back in those days. And the National Guard unit for Kent, Queen Anne's, and I guess maybe Talbot, Caroline County, this region on the midshore was part of the 29th Infantry Division. I'm sure you've got something in that book about the 29th Infantry, Infantry Division. I'm actually not sure. The 125th Regiment of the 29th Infantry Division was made up of men from the mid-shore, mid-eastern shore area. And this National Guard unit was activated, I think, in early 1941, just before the uh, war broke out in December and trained um, throughout the country and shipped out to England probably, I'm guessing, 1942 sometime. And if you interview people who were more involved with the National Guard, could give you better dates maybe. And it was this, it was this unit that uh, June of 6, 1944, crossed the channel and was part of the D-Day invasion in France. So there were a lot of casualties, of course. I get a little sentimental at times thinking about it. Um, then when the war was over, the troops came home. And it was a big celebration, of course. And um, I remember being so proud, so, so patriotically proud, which I am today. When I hear um, God Bless America or the Star Spangled Banner or the taps blown on a bugle, I get a little choked up sometimes. Um, and as I saw these young men, you know, dressed in their freshly pressed uniforms, I thought, you know, I really should be there doing that. Little did I know that six years later, I would be wearing an Air Force officer's uniform, 
and a Korean War. That's about all I can ha can offer you. But you can ask me questions, and I'll sure. do it the best I can. Yeah. Well, we talked about rationing for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering how that affected you as a kid. I mean, I know you weren't driving or using tires for anything, but do you remember if your food changed or if there was any anything that really impacted you when you were young? Of course it did. But but I was a kid then. I I didn't. Um, you know, people can say, well, I was poor, but I didn't remember being poor. Well, I wasn't really poor, but I, and I didn't have the food that I would have had had it not been for the war effort. But I don't remember it. It didn't, it didn't have a big impact on me at all. We, you know, we got along well. My, I'm sure my parents, I know, my, my mother did the best she could with what she had. And we had nutrition, nutrition, nutritionists, is that a word? Nutritional? Nutritional. Well, and we had food that was healthy. <laughs> okay. In spite of the fact we couldn't get a lot of things. Oh, yeah, my father had a little garden, of course. Okay. And that was, uh, a lot of people had little gardens. Because that way you got fresh vegetables right out your back door. Do you remember what he would grow back there? Yeah, he grew corn. We had a deep a deep lot. We lived in the middle of town, but it was the lot went on deep. He he grew tomatoes, radishes, lettuce. He had a rhubarb plant. You ever hear of rhubarb? Yeah. I hated it, but he loved rhubarb. Um, I'm not sure what else he had. But I, knew that, I do know that a couple of years, he raised some chickens. We had some chickens in the backyard. How did you come across those? <laughs> I don't know where he got them, but, but we, I remember, remember that we raised, raised chickens. Mm -hmm. I didn't like to see him when he cut their heads off. But he provided food for the table. Okay. Did you mostly have all the food for your family? Did you guys ever trade it or uh, get involved in that? No, I don't recall that. Okay. You know, we had our food stamps. Um, and not only food, but there were no silk stockings for the ladies. The ladies wore silk stockings in those days. Mm -hmm. Instead, they were replaced by what was called nylons, which were fake silk, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. Sure. <laughs> That's fine. Um, we're really um, focusing on um, women particularly uh, when we're looking at the home front. We're curious maybe what your mother did if she went back to work or did anything different than the usual routine once the war started. Well, my mother worked in in the office of my father's business. Mm -hmm. um, what was the second part of your question? We were just wondering if she had a different routine or picked up a, um, other jobs for the war effort. Hmm. 
No. Okay. Not, not that I can recall. Okay. She may have. In your high school, you said that a lot of the teachers would leave and go off to the war. Mm-hmm. Were they replaced by um, old retired men, or were they replaced by young women? Or? At one point, there were no men in our high school. No t- male teachers, they were all female teachers. Okay. And they were retired people who returned to fill in during the absence of the regular teachers. Did you feel they were just as good quality as the male teachers? Yeah, I did. Because I think back, they were. They did a great job for us. And, you know, there was a lot of, and I can't speak specifically to this without giving more thought to it, but there were a lot of things that where people filled in for other people to to take up the slack. There was a lot of cooperation among people to get the job done, whatever it was, in spite of the hardships of, of the war. And that's what got us through it, the civilians through it. That's great. That's really great. People don't do that anymore. Not as much, <laughs> I don't think, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, so would you say that the community in Churchill really uh, became more cohesive and worked together? Absolutely. That's more cohesive, yes, it certainly was. You know, the, the minister, minister drove the fire truck. Right. I mean, that's, you know. I mean, can you imagine What that? else can you do? Yeah, 14-year-old boys fought fires. Can't do that anymore. No. Can't do that anymore, no. no. Um, the man who replaced our, our postal worker, uh, was quite old, but he trudged along up and down the streets delivering the mail as best he could. And, you know, in, in spite of the fact that cars were wearing out and tar treads were coming off and flapping in, in, on, on the roads, and you couldn't have... Um, as much sugar as you wanted, or as much meat as you wanted. Um, people adapted to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they knew it was tough times. Um, there were so many families that had loved ones who weren't there, who were gone. I I might mention the fact that in the windows of many of the homes were blue stars. Blue star meant that you had a member of the family in the armed forces. Now, you didn't want to see a gold star because a gold star meant that you lost a loved one. And I mentioned when they all came home, the joy and the, how proud everybody was, and the celebrations. But for some, it was a bittersweet, bittersweet time for those who had lost a son or a husband or a grandson. 
What was uh, going to college like at Washington College? Let me tell you about that. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Okay. I must have missed that in my notes. That's all right. That was an experience, let me tell you, because of the, of the time that it was. I entered college in 1947, in September. I had just had my 17th birthday. There weren't 12 grades then, there were 11 grades. You graduate after 11, 11 years. I had just had my 17th birthday. And even though I only lived seven miles from the campus, I wanted to live on the campus. And I got permission from the business manager, a man by the name of Dutch Gunshot. I don't know what, he, what he, a Dutchman, of course. I don't know what his first real first name was because everybody called him Dutch. We kids didn't call him Dutch, of course, but his peers did. And um, I made a special trip that summer over here to plead with him to let me live on campus because they were short of on pretty crowded. But remember, I, I was—I just had my 17th birthday, and at that time, incoming classes were veterans who had been going to college during the war, and at the end of the, the year, they lost their exemption. They had to go in the Army or wherever. So they were returning to finish their education, and those that didn't start college, who left high school at age 18 to go right into the armed forces, they were coming back. There was a GI Bill. That was the, uh, you know about the GI Bill. That was money that the, the federal government pro provided for veterans to get their edu college educations. So I, I don't know what percentage, but a very large percentage, maybe more than 50%, I'm guessing that, were guys who had spent two, three, four years in the armed forces who were returning to college or who were entering college for the first time. Many married with kids, um, and here I was with my my peers, 17 years old, commingling with these guys who had been around the world a couple times. Worldly wise, much older, much wiser, you know. Um, so that was that was quite an experience. We 17-year-olds grew up really fast sure. in that environment. Yeah. But it wasn't a bad environment. No, I'm not kicking it. No, I'm, it was fine. We learned a lot from them. I think they helped us mature wisely, more wisely than we would have had they not been there. Mm -hmm. But that was a, a, unlike college today where most of you are, when you enter, you're ending right from high school, age 18 or so. It was a conglomeration of very young kids and much older adults 
who were who made up the uh, the uh, population there. And I think when I graduated in 1951, I think there were about a hundred in my graduating class. So there probably were a total of 400 or 450, maybe 500 students at the most at the time. Mm -hmm. And the facilities were not very good because during the war there was not money. The, co the college, colleges and universities didn't have money because to build new buildings and expand their buildings and beautify their buildings because they didn't have enough students there to do this, to get the money to do this with. So I lived in West Hall. Yeah. Is West Hall, it's still there. The West, East, and Middle are all there. I know they're there, but they call them the same thing? West, yeah. Middle, and East? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I lived in West Hall. I don't know what it's like now, but it had the nickname Rat Hall. Yeah. We didn't have... <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. We didn't have any rats there, but... The rooms were very small. The um, bath, all the bathroom facilities were in the basement. Are they now? Can't be. There's a bathroom on each floor. A bathroom on each floor. Mm -hmm. Luxury. That's luxury, yeah. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to be on the second floor. Guys on the third floor had to go down three flights of steps to get to the urinal. Mm. <laughs> oh, um, or, or the showers. I mean, they were, they were, they were all in the basement. Okay. They did build, um, like I say, they were running out of space to house the students. They began an expansion program probably while I was there or shortly after I graduated, but they did build a wooden building that looked like a barracks. And it's now, it was then located pretty much where, um, maybe where the, the science building is. I think the one farthest back near where like the 7-Eleven is, like that far, on the edge of campus, so west is here? No, yeah. no, if you go down Campus Avenue okay. and take a, a right into the, um, into the campus. Mm -hmm. Oh, once you, once you turn, it's that building right there where you turn to go into the campus. What is that told? Yes. Okay. I believe so. I think so. Yeah. That's where the uh, it looked, and this building looked like a barracks because it it was built out of wood, and um, they called it GI Hall. Now the where where your library is now was the gym. The old gym. And they they made rooms in the basement of the gym to house some students. That's how desperate they were for space. Wow. Yeah. So can you, you can imagine being awakened in the morning with the basketball <laughs> bouncing on the floor right above you. 
So that was no, that was another temporary um, setup for housing. Wow. <laughs> uh, these are like. Um, yeah, Sarah, you probably have some very specific questions. Yeah, these are specific. So if you don't know them, it's totally okay. Okay. Um, do you know Frank Macy Lag? He would have been a senior. Yeah. You do. I I knew who I knew him. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Why? Um, I actually found some of his letters. Did you really? The archives to Miss Doris Bell. Um, yep, Miss Bell. Yeah. yeah. Miss Bell was the lady's physical physical education teacher. Did you interact with Doris Bell at all? Or? N not at all. No. Okay. No. Um, yeah, there wasn't too much. I mean, the, you know, the, the the men athletes and the women athletes. <laughs> didn't meet. No. Uh, Miss Bell was the, the ladies physical education teacher. Yeah. Also, do you remember the name Clayton McGrand? I do remember the name. Okay. Now, these, these guys were a lot older than I was. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't know them, yeah. um, you know, much about them. I didn't have much inter interaction with them. Yeah. But I remember the name. Okay. What, what, what were the letters like? Or can't, can't you tell me that? Oh, I can't. Um, the letters were just, they were from, um, they were from Frank and Clayton to Miss Doris Bell just kind of telling her like what was going on in their lives because they were overseas. Yeah. Um, Frank was in Italy and Clayton was in London okay. um, during the war. Oh, so interesting. They yeah. They would tell like kind of their tr basic training stories and kind of just keep like updated on like what they were doing without well, that was nice of them to do that. Yeah. She she was very well liked. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to think of something now. You go ahead, but maybe it'll come back to me. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, those are my two guys. Um. By the way, Frank Lag's nephew lives in Chestertown. Oh, really? What's his name? Mike Maselag. Michael. Michael was a banker, Chesapeake Bank, mm -hmm. down on the corner. Okay. He was he was instrumental in in starting that bank. Oh. It was a different it was a mm -hmm. different name of a bank and that went out of business and yeah. he was instrumental in getting it started, I think. Okay. And he was the president of the bank. He retired not too long ago. Okay. Wow. But his mother His mother was a Maselag. She may have been Frank's sister. Oh, okay. Yeah. Frank. That's great for you. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Look Mike up in the look him up in the look yeah him up. or. Oh, okay. I'm not sure whether he went to Washington College or, or not. We can find that out pretty easily. You can certainly find that yeah. out very easily. Yeah. 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 Um, I actually spent all of last semester kind of reading their letters. So Is that I'm right? attached yeah um, so oh, that's exciting that your name Charlie Clark come up uh, anything you've done Charles Clark was he graduated of 51 no no Charles Clark was the Dean of Students and oh. when I was there mm -hmm. and also um, a history professor mm -hmm. uh, he did both and he was the uh, 
one who revived the lacrosse program at Washington College. And he was the lacrosse coach for a number of years. Oh. And they had some great lacrosse teams. Uh, yeah. While I was there even, they had some great lacrosse teams. Lacrosse was then just becoming really a big sport in this area, right after the war. And um, it wasn't played in the local high schools here on the Eastern Shore, but it was in the Baltimore area, in Annapolis area, and um, a lot of these guys that played in high schools over there came over to play lacrosse for Charlie Clark, Dr. Clark, okay. yeah. and he, he was um, quite well known uh, for his lacrosse teams. Wow. He left and later returned to the Eastern Shore and became a lacrosse coach at Salisbury University. You must be familiar with the rivalry between yeah. Salisbury and Western College. Mm -hmm. War on the Shore. Right. Still happens. So, so still every happens. Year. Every year. Of yeah. course it does. And you and we won this last year, was it? I thought we, we did beat them last we year. I think, well, or was it the year this, before? This year we lost pretty yeah. badly. I it think was like 24, and we, I think we had seven points, and they had like 24 points. But di didn't sometime in the war, I, I think we won. I yeah. think we did. It yeah. was, was unusual. It was an upset. Mm -hmm. But we did win. Yeah. Um, trying to think of a name of a person that a dear was a, he, he's dead now but a dear friend of mine and it's funny you know when you get 85 things don't always click the way you'd like for them to click in your mind mm -hmm. I'm remembering all these people that I haven't seen for 50 years mm -hmm. and I can't remember the name of a person who just died who lived here in Chestertown who was instrumental in sports at Washington College and who I was so f really uh, such a great friend of mine and I can't remember his name. Ed Athey. Ed, the year I started in 19, Ed graduated in 1946. and went away to get his master's degree in physical education and came back to Washington College as part of the athletic um, group. Yeah. I think he, he came back in 1947 when I started. Uh, the baseball diamonds named for him Athey Field? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, I live right on Western Shore, which it um it circles the baseball diamond. Is that right? So it's right out front of my house. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, he was the baseball coach there for, I don't know how many years, a long time, mm -hmm. maybe 35 years or so. Long, long time, yeah. 
and he was just a fine individual. There's a, a book written about him. I, th I think the name of it, I have it, as a matter of fact, I think the name of it is Atheist Field or something like that. Speaking of sports, um, when I was a freshman and sophomore, there was a football, there was football at Washington College. They had a football team. It was discontinued when I became a junior. It was just too costly for a small college like Washington College to, uh, to afford. But they did have some good football teams. If you went back in the archives, you will see where they had some championship football teams and also basketball teams. The Flying something. Flying Pentagon? Yes. How do you know? Um, You've been back in the archives, too. Yeah. Yeah. The Flying Pentagon. Why were they called the Flying Pentagons? I don't know. Okay. Except they they were very very good. They they, they were ex, an exceptionally winning basketball team. Oh wow. Okay. Because I, I read the name in the archives and I was like. Why? I mean yeah I mentioned Dutch Gumshot. I'm not so sure he wasn't one of those. Yeah. Maybe not. But. I think he, I think he might have been. I remember Gumshot. Now, our president, Dr. Mead, Gilbert Mead, mm -hmm. died uh, while I was a senior. And he was replaced uh, on an interim basis by the uh, dean, uh, dean, the uh, I guess you call it the provost now, the dean of the faculty, man by the name of Livinggood, Doctor Livinggood, who lived right there on Washington Avenue. While they searched for a new president, and the new president who came in was Doctor Gibson. And Dr. Gibson, I have a picture of Dr. Gibson handing me my uh, my diploma. Um, and he and his wife lived here in Chestertown after retirement from the college. And he died, and, and she stayed here too, and stayed here even after he died. She only died maybe like maybe ten years ago or something like that. Yeah, we were actually talking about that the other day. Um, she lived, if I, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, <laughs> as you face the customs house, she lived right next door. I believe it was very close. Yeah, we I have, think that might have been it. I think, I think Our, it was that. Um, the supervisor who kind of runs the custom house uh, remembers her. When he moved here, she was one of the first people he met. And when did he move here? About when? Did, about when did he move here? Early two thousands, I believe. Yeah. yeah, she was still living then. Yeah. Quite, quite old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she. He knew her. I, yeah. 
Adam Goodhart. Yeah, I think he he raves about her. Yeah. He talks yeah. about her all the time. Oh, she was a, gra a very gracious lady. Mm -hmm. And and her husband too. Um, her husband and Charlie Clark didn't go along. That's why I, the dean of students we, I mentioned. That's why he left and went somewhere else. But but Dr. Clark was, in my opinion, uh, very very good president of the college. Did a lot of good things. Very well liked in the neighborhood, in the com in the community. Do you remember professors being a lot more involved in the town, more so than today? Yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, now that you mention it, I think they were. Of course, there were so fewer professors then, mm -hmm. and and they stay. I think they stayed longer, or maybe that's not a, accurate. But um, I think they were more involved. I know Mr. Dumshot was very active in the church that I attended. Mm -hmm. um, he was uh, one of the uh, members of the. What we call the vestry, the governing body of the, of the church, mm. and Dr. Gibson and his wife both were very active in a lot of the community endeavors. President stayed longer in those days. Mm. Nowadays, you guys got a president, and he stays four years. And we're on our. I'm on the third that we've had since. You're on the third. Yeah, we had uh, Mitchell Reese. Yeah. We had interim president uh, Jay Griswold, and now we're on. I don't. I don't uh, remember her name. Sheila Bear. Sheila Bear. Mm -hmm. Third one since I've been here. Qu quite, a, uh, quite a background Sheila Bear has in, in government. Yeah. You know, ahead of the Federal Reserve. Um, I'm really excited. I mean, that's a tremendous responsibility. Mitchell Reese, of course, you know, he known worldwide for his uh, endeavors for the government. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't need this in a disparaging way, but I just think some came even before, um, who was the first one? Oh, Mitchell Reese was here when you came. Yeah. Even before him, some came in three or four years. From what I know, Professor, uh, Dr. Gibson had a really good reputation. He was one of the big presidents of the school. And stayed a long time. Mm -hmm. He was instrumental in a lot of things. Yeah. So. I'm getting ready to give you my opinion on that, but I don't want to do it with that running. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I mean, do you have anything else to tell us about World War II and growing up? Or? I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, thank you very much. Yeah. And Quite we can welcome. go off the record for a little bit if you'd like.